you're able, please stand with me and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be verses 11 through 21, 2 Corinthians 5. Beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord again before we hear from him. Lord, week in and week out, we come as needy people, needing grace, presence of your spirit to hear, as a needy preacher, in need of your presence and power to declare your truth. So help us all this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We persuade men. Persuasion is what this passage points to very clearly. Persuasion, a word that means to seek someone's favor, to convince one through words to believe something. Persuasion. Paul's entire life was persuading men. This was his calling. This was the man's life. Ultimately, the goal of persuasion is reconciliation. As, verse 20, ambassadors for Christ, as though God... We're making an appeal through us. 
we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's message, our message, is the good news of reconciliation. That sinners can be reconciled to God, which assumes what? Alienation. Separation from God. Hostility. Enmity, that is an enemy kind of relationship with one's creator. That's what it means. But a relationship that can be turned into a full and complete reconciliation with the one true and only living God. Persuading others of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're talking about persuasion, not manipulation, not rhetorical tricks, not persuasive words of human wisdom or some kind of philosophical language. Not mind games, not word games. Paul renounces all of that for four chapters. Thus far. It's persuasion through evangelism. Now, there's a world of difference between evangelism that looks for a product, numbers, we'll call it in our day, and evangelism that is willing to go through a process, time, strategy, and prayer. We're accustomed to the product. Fair enough to say in America? You know, you present the gospel and press people to make a decision for Jesus. Right now. When most people that you and I talk to are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ through a process that is oftentimes lengthy. Very, very prolonged process in most cases. Would you agree with me on the right? Left. Everyone in the middle. Amen. Amen. This is the New Testament design, beloved. We see it repeatedly throughout the missionary endeavors of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 18, as an example, every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Gentiles. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts, 20, or Acts 19, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them again about the kingdom of God. Acts 28, Paul explained and he declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others would not believe. Why? Because they could not believe. 
Belief is a miracle. True faith is a miracle. It's the miracle of regeneration, without which you will remain dead in your transgressions and sins and at enmity with God. That's why we preach the word of God. It is his means by which he enlivens those he chooses to enliven. Thank you. Paul wasn't out to merely win arguments, but to engage people in a process in order to persuade them by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who alone removes the blindness. It is he alone who, who strips away the deadness by way of God's means, not man's means, but God's gospel. Evangelism. True gospel evangelism. And again, more times than not, is a process. Now, review. We need to work up to the therefore of verse 11, okay? So there's a bunch of stuff that comes before the therefore. In Paul's absence in Corinth, um, there was a group of false teachers, um, super apostles, as Paul refers to them as, who were trying to um, reinforce their self-appointed authority by pointing to Paul's unimpressiveness. Saying that he was weak, lacking eloquence, certainly lacking charisma. Um, notice the man is always in trouble. He's battered, he's bruised, he's bloodied. They were accusing him, saying there is no way that his menace ministry can possibly be blessed of God. Look at the way the man suffers. What a fool. In response, as we've studied over the course of the the last four chapters, Paul shows that these intruders did not understand God, the Lord Jesus Christ, let alone the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God, who is majestic, displays his majesty in meekness and by way of apparent weakness. For I, Paul said, was once an enemy of Christ, and I now, I've been conquered by Christ. Remember chapter 2 and verse 14? Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. That is the picture of being a conquered enemy of Christ. And now uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. I was an enemy. Now I'm a captive of the king. He goes on to chapter 3 to describe the ministry that Christ had given him, and that is the new covenant ministry of the gospel, ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ that comes with a greater glory, not a glory that will fade away, as did the glory of the old covenant. It came with glory, did it not? It did, but it faded away. Christ fulfills it. This glory shall not fade. He says in chapter 4, 
We have this treasure that is the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this new covenant ministry in earthen vessels, clay pots. These bodies, God has planted this treasure in dirty, fragile clay pots, disposable containers made of baked clay to carry the gospel. So take that, super apostles. <laughs> Why? Why does he do that? Chapter 4 and verse 7. Because the excellency, the praise, and the glory, that it may be all of God. Notice. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, therefore, in the midst of all the suffering, we do not lose heart. It's a glorious message in earthen vessels that are perishing. He then goes on to speak of his trouble, his afflictions, his heartaches, and he says, yet we persevere, okay, with the word therefore, chapter 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man, the clay pot, is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, he referred to his suffering as. Paul, all of us in this room together will never suffer as Paul did for the gospel. And he calls it light and momentary. Remember that next time you complain, myself included. This momentary light affliction is producing something in us, for us. And that is an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comprehension. You cannot begin to grasp what he's doing in us through it this greater weight of glory, although the affliction is weighty. But not like eternal weight, because the, the weight down here is like airy, it's fluffy, is what, the, what it means. Can't be compared. While we look, verse 18, chapter 4, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are, which are, it's only been like two weeks, not seen. I was talking to somebody about, I said, hey, we're going to be teaching Ecclesiastes on Thursday nights. Oh, I've already been through Ecclesiastes, but can you teach it? In other words, do you know it? Amen? So we, we sit here to learn it, to know it. Amen? Amen. And I know you know it. 4, chapter 5, verse 1, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, this body, is Torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, says the apostle, whether at home or absent, that is, to be pleasing to God. Pleasing. That, my friends, is a thought that not only stimulated the apostle as his ambition, to be pleasing to God, it also sobered the man. Not only will he experience glory when he is with Christ, this man understands that he will also give an account to Christ for what he did down here in this body. That is his ministry. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that 
each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, rewarded according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word bad or the word evil there simply means useless. We went over this last Lord's Day. And that is that he will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine whether he's eternally saved, not to be judged for his sin. That judgment took place where? Christian, at the cross. Romans 8 is clear. Christian, no charge will ever be brought against God's elect. I said that earlier this morning. This is to give an account for the stewardship of the grace of God that has been entrusted to us in these bodies. Where motives will be put on display. Motives and methods for ministry, especially for preachers, but yet for all, some of which will be burned up like wood, hay, and straw. That which passes through the fiery eyes of Christ will be revealed as gold, silver, and precious stones. Some will suffer loss of reward, but they're saved because they stand on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. It's just that they wanted to tickle men's ears and their motives for ministry on that day will be made manifest. With all of that in mind, Paul's motivation for ministry of reconciliation, verse 11, therefore. Therefore, with all that in mind, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Fear of the Lord. Okay, what that does not mean is that Paul was afraid of God. It does not mean trepidation. It does not mean some kind of paralyzing anxiety. What it means is reverence. To revere, to honor, to respect, to obey, knowing that he sees all, knows all, and stands above all as he controls all. Fear of the Lord. It means recognizing that God has priority over everything. Quite simply, we exist for his glory and his good pleasure. That's what drove the man. That was the motivation for the ministry of reconciliation, the fear of the Lord. Thus, making it his ambition, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is what drove the Apostle Paul to persuade the Corinthians first and foremost in this context, along with everyone else, of his gospel call as an apostle to persuade. Friends, one of the central themes of Scripture to express the way God's image bearers, human beings, are designed to live in relationship to their creator is the fear of the Lord. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1 and verse 7, I think it is. Proverbs 14, we read that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The book of Ecclesiastes concludes in chapter 12 that the fear of the Lord is the whole duty of man. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 
Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. What are you fearing them for? What, because they laugh at you because you profess Christ? <laughs> they can't do, what can they do to you? They can kill you, that's it. Do not fear those who kill the body but aren't able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. That's God. Okay, that, that pretty much describes Paul, does it not? This is what drove him to go out and bring the announcement of reconciliation through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It was knowing the fear of the Lord and caring for the souls to whom he ministered. You know, one antidote, okay, just one antidote to the weakness of so much contemporary preaching is the realization that our message is all that stands between heaven and hell. This is it. You know, so many preachers today, and even Christians, we just want to preach the love of Jesus. I know this fool who says, you should never preach the bad news. My friend, you fool, you can't get to the good news or understand it unless you know the bad news. Because the magnitude of Christ's love comes to the forefront only against the backdrop of God's justice. Sadly, a great deal of preaching done today by men is worthless preaching. Worthless. As preachers try to get people to act and live good and behave well. So they have messages on, you know, four steps to a better this, that, and the other. And by those things, they convince people that they know God. That is empty morality preaching, which is worthless. Worthless. Well, because I do this and I don't do that, I must be saved. You're fooled. You've been duped. To speak of hell is not to argue against moralism, but to support the call and the necessity of the gospel. Are you with me? Because righteousness in and through a person is the right response to the one and only righteous God. That's it. You can't earn it. Sound preaching must declare God's precious son whom to know alone is eternal life. To be reconciled to God through Christ. So Paul's motivation for the ministry of reconciliation was preaching the precious son of our Lord, God Almighty, Jesus the Christ. Paul goes on in verse 11b, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences, Corinthians, who are doubting my apostolic authority and buying into these false apostles. So he strikes at their conscience. Remember, Paul was with them for how long? A year and a half. 
with the Corinthians. He led them to Christ. He discipled them in Christ. He taught them. He counseled them. He straightened out their skewed thinking about Christ. He goes away. These false apostles slither in, and they're now buying into their rhetoric. So he strikes at their conscience. You know deep down. You know that I came with the truth of the gospel. And now they're listening to false apostles who run Paul down to the ground. And they're accepting their, their baseless assaults against the man. Verse 12. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will not have an answer for those who take pride in appearance. Who, were, who was taking pride in appearance? The false apostles. And not in heart. He's striking at their conscience. Knowing as he did that he was being mocked for appearing as being weak, for not being an eloquent speaker. But what matters is the message that came through the man, not flowery speech. They loved flowery speech. Paul said, I came and declared nothing to you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The scandal of all scandals. You hear this? So Paul challenges the Corinthians, siding with these so-called super apostles, because they love to be entertained. They love to have their little ears tickled by lofty speech. Paul comes in preaching Christ and him crucified, which was a scandalous message in the first century and no less of a scandal in the 21st. I'll tell you that right now. You believe it? So viewed as being crazy, suffering all that he did, he came preaching Christ crucified. That's not going to help things any. As far as being approved by man goes, it doesn't help any today. That's why these fools change the message. So that everyone out there will smile and applaud the man. Are you with me, beloved? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, the fear of the Lord wasn't the only thing that drove the man. Notice, it was also the love. Notice, the love of the Lord. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So, this is not Paul's love for Christ. Are we clear? This is Christ's love for Paul is what drives the man. This is what controlled him. This is what constrains us, says the apostle. This is what pushes me. To do what? To tell the truth of the human condition. That we're sinful, weak, and destined to perish in and of ourselves. But Christ's love, Christ's love is also the basis for the sacrificial Death that provides the righteousness that these fallen 
men and women need. It's Christ. The unmerited love of Christ that was poured into the soul of Saul, the self-righteous Pharisee who was en route to jail and murder Christians, met by the living Savior, that love. And, And I'll say this again. Paul wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking him. And those for whom he seeks out, he finds 100% of the time. Amen? Amen, little sister. Luther said, the love of God does not find but creates what is lovely to it. Who creates the love of God in Christ within you? The loving God through Christ. (sighs) He died, notice, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all those who died in him, is what he says. Now, that does not mean Probably some Arminian here thinking, gotcha. He died for the whole world without exception. Friends, if Christ died for the whole world without exception, the whole world without exception would be saved. (laughs) Christ died for all who belong to him. Not without exception, but without distinction. Christ died for all without distinction. He died for Jewish people and he died for Gentile people from throughout the world without distinction. Those for whom Christ died will be saved. They will come to saving faith in time. Christ's death was the death of his people, his elect who in time would come to believe. The the penalty for whose sins Christ paid, you say, that sounds like predestination. Exactly. You're right. That's what the Bible tells us. You can go read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 when you get home, if you still doubt it. Friends, Jesus carried their names to the cross on that day when he took your sins upon himself. He was carrying your name to the cross, Christian. You believe it? This, his death was not an impersonal death, in other words, for all without exception, but definite for all without distinction. Christ died for all who died. They died in him. You were crucified in Christ that day. There are people who teach that he died for the whole world without exception. And if you teach it, if you believe that, then Jesus' death was only a potential death and not an actual death. So question, just suppose for one minute that nobody from the time of his death and resurrection ever believed. Just say, question, for whom did Christ die? Nobody, period. Nobody. Abraham was justified 
By faith. Genesis 15, Romans 4. Did he have to be atoned for? Yeah. By faith, he trusted in the one who was to come who would atone for his sins. When Abraham died before Christ came, where did he go? Heaven. Paradise. Heaven. Any contemporary of Abraham's who did not believe, where did he go? To hell. Did Jesus die for his sins, the whole world without exception, the one that went to hell? Of course not. Did he die for Abraham's? Of course. Of course. Jesus didn't come and die for those who were already in hell. He came to make a particular definite atonement, not one that's merely possible. Abraham was atoned for. His contemporaries who didn't believe were not. Jesus is clear. John 6. All that the Father gives me. Who? All. They will come to me. And no one can come to me. What? Unless the Father draws them. Literally drag. It means to throw a bucket down in a water well and to pull up the water. This is why I said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. It's pretty clear who the all are. So if you say he died for everybody in general, then he died for nobody in particular. Your hope is in vain. This is an actual atonement. Definite, not possible. Certain, not potential. Christ's death does not make salvation possible. It makes it inevitable. And again, go read Ephesians 1. He died and rose again, notice, on behalf of all of those who died in him. What does that mean? That their faith will be made manifest by, by dying to themselves and coming alive to Christ. In time, that will be made manifest. Verse 15, and if he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Friends, at the moment of regeneration, the moment you were born again, we ceased to exist in Adam and became alive in the last Adam, none other than Jesus Christ. You've been made alive in Christ. So it's important to notice that those for whom Christ dies, that is the all, those whom he presents, are said to come to life and to now live for the one who gave them life, Jesus Christ, and no longer merely for themselves. Isn't it beautiful? The love of Christ drove the man. The fear of the Lord drove the man. Christ's love within him drove the man which means that their lives no longer orbit merely around themselves. They, they live for the sake of the one who's delivered them. And this becomes Paul's focal point with regard to arguing against the false apostles who were gospel salesmen. Advancing themselves, exalting themselves, and not Christ. 
They peddled God's word. They tweaked the message. They watered down the gospel by removing the scandal. Christ crucified, that's the scandal. Paul's point, they may gain followers, and they will, but they will stand before the Lord on judgment day and give an account for their ministries. They'll gain a crowd. People love to be entertained. People come here and say, that was not entertaining. Good. Good. You didn't make me laugh. Good. Unless I'm trying to be funny. Then it's not so good. Okay, so notice from motivation for the ministry of reconciliation, we move on to the consequences of the ministry of reconciliation. And there's three things. The consequence of new life in Christ produces a new perspective because of a new creation that leads to a new role. New perspective, new creation, new role. Verse 16, therefore. A lot of therefores in this passage. Therefore. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. So the, the, the word therefore points to the consequence from the previous, and he says, since conversion, we no longer evaluate people merely externally. This new life gives birth to a new perspective. A new perspective. This is spiritual knowledge. This is spiritual insight. We no longer see people purely from the outside, which means what? Suddenly, social status, wealth, Race, education, political power, a great family name, no longer matter. On the other side, street urchins, drug addicts and alcoholics roam in the streets, roam in our neighborhoods. We don't look merely at the outward. Those are souls of individuals who are at enmity with God. That's how we see everyone. Because of the life, love of Christ within us. What matters now is, is that person rightly related to God through faith in Jesus Christ? That's what matters. Not the external. Notice, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Before Paul was reconciled to God, prior to his conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, he viewed Jesus merely as another man from Nazareth. A blasphemer. A phony, a fraud, a messianic imposter. That's how Paul, who was Saul, viewed Jesus of Nazareth, merely externally. Physically. So as a blasphemer, he, he, he will be cursed of God, hanged upon a tree. Yeah, finally, said the apostle Paul, who was Saul. Death to the blasphemer. 
not realizing that he was bearing the consequence of man's sin and taking upon himself the wrath of God in place of many sinners, not all. Providing propitiation. The satisfaction of God's holy justice. Saul was blind to that reality until, until he was met on the road to Damascus by the risen sovereign king who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which he replied, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. You touch my people, you touch me. Blinded. Light flashed around him, blinded for three days. Get up and go into town. It'll be told you what you shall do. You have no choice in the matter. You're going to preach my name to kings, to princes. You're going to go on. You're going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. He got up, went into town. God called another servant, Ananias. Go to the street called Straight. There's a servant of mine. He's praying. And I must show him the things he must suffer for my name's sake. And here he is. Here he is. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. I can attest to that. Says Saul, who was made the apostle Paul. This is very typical of unsaved people, to view Jesus like that. Ligonier Ministries released a survey that revealed, are you ready for this? 52% of Americans and 30%, and 30% okay, 30% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he was not God incarnate. Did you hear that? In another part of the survey, 65% of evangelicals agreed with this statement, quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, end quote. Newsflash, anyone who believes that is unregenerate. They're not saved. Jesus declared, I am. I am the father of one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Why did the Pharisees pick up stones to stone Jesus? Because he, being a man, declared himself to be God. These people are not evangelicals, friends. They're not evangelicals. You cannot be in Christ and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. If that's you today and you declare to be a Christian, you must repent of that folly now. He's Lord God Almighty. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So stop it. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. The Holy Spirit united Paul to Christ, and that changed everything about the man. Everything. The veil was lifted. His identity was changed, transforming his goals, his desires. It, this now shaped his ministry. 
shaped his life. Fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. Amen. New creation now. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's the obvious conclusion of verse 15. Those who died in Christ. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the Lord prophesied that there would be a new creation. Amen? We read one in our opening call to service this morning, Isaiah 43. Listen to it, verse 18. Thus says the Lord, do, do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now I will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. So the Lord promised not to leave his old covenant people in ruin. That's what we read there. He will not leave them in ruin, but would do something through his people and he would bring us into those people, or I should say through those people, the new covenant people of God. Isn't it beautiful? You're a new creature in Christ. This is why we speak of Christ's resurrection as the birthday of new creation. This is the new age, friends. The fact that the old has passed away, that's Paul's argument since chapter 3. What's the old? The old covenant, it's passed away. And the new covenant, of which brings forth a new creation, is part of it. And you're in Christ, and you're part of the new covenant, part of the new age, part of the new creation, because you're in Christ, who rose from the dead. See the theology here? I'm trying to do a little theology. It's very important. So verse 17, then, is not only a description, beloved, of new life in Christ, but also the course of redemptive history. How the Bible flows. The old covenant has been replaced by the new. The old cursed creation under Adam, that's the old age, it's been replaced by the new age in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death. And now you're in him as a new what? Creation. A new creature in Christ. So Saul's identity of hating Christians and hating Jesus, a self-righteous fool, met by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, was now transformed into the Apostle Paul. New creation. The age to come has dawned. God has set forth his Holy Spirit upon all his people throughout the world right now. Representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ around the globe who have the residing presence of God the Holy Spirit within them, just as you do this morning. Glorious gift. So we lose not what? Heart. Worldwide people of God. No longer dominated by the flesh. Okay, listen to this now from Galatians 5. No longer dominated by sexual immorality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, 
divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those who are characteristic by those those whose lives are characteristic of those things um, are not part of the kingdom. They're just fooling themselves. But we who have the Spirit of God reconciled with God, new creatures in Christ, bear fruits of righteousness, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruit, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Always perfectly. Besides me? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> of course not. But this is what now characterizes those who are new creatures in Christ. Amen? <clears throat> so we have the consequences of reconciliation, new perspective, new creation. Lastly, we have a new role. New role, verse 18. Now all these things are from, from God. All these things that we've been discussing, they're from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Praise God. Amen. No trespass will be held against you. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The goal of persuasion, what is it? Goal of persuasion, reconciliation, they rhyme. The goal of persuasion is reconciliation. They almost rhyme. You're all sitting, that doesn't really rhyme. Well, <laughs> So Paul points out, in a sense, that all Christians are, are now, notice, ministers of reconciliation. That doesn't mean everyone's a minister in the official sense, but Christians should act as agents of reconciliation. We have this treasure in earth and what? Vessels. The vessel's dying. The treasure is the gospel. It's, the treasure is Christ. Christ lives in this earthen vessel that you're dying. You're, you're here dying this morning. Amen? Alive in Christ, nevertheless, which means you'll live forever. So through the proclamation of this message, God is pleased to save sinners. So in other words, God uses a means, does he not? He always has means to his end, and we are his means in providing reconciliation with the message. A new role. Verse 20. Therefore, okay, another therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God, okay, as though. It's as though God were making an appeal through us. You see your life as that or as such? He makes an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You ever begged anyone to be reconciled to God? I have. Emblazon unbelief. You look at him in the face. You go, please be reconciled to God. Beggars. I was a beggar last Monday to someone. I beg you, be reconciled. We are ambassadors. What's an ambassador? A representative of one kingdom to another. Representatives. 
An ambassador goes and he lives in a foreign land to represent the interests of his own homeland. That's what he does. As Christians, God has given us all a new role. We are representatives of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, whatever your vocation may be. I work at Sharp with a bunch of unbelieving lunatics. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ right there. Amen? Get a witness. Making an appeal through us to, to beg to beg them what? To come to church with me? No. To beg of them to, man, go get your life straightened up. Is that what we do? No. Be reconciled to God. Right? And we'll get to the how in just a second. We're almost done. Did someone just say, whew? I didn't think so. So as ambassadors, we're called to bring the message that he sends with us. Don't change it. God loves you and has a plan for your life. That's not the gospel. Is that the gospel? That's not the gospel. That's a great sentence. It's a great statement. In other words, we cannot make our own message up. We must proclaim the government that we represent. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ ambassadors in the name of Christ. Speaking of governments, in this election season, please think, beloved, think biblically when you vote. There is no politician, there is no political party that can solve the problems of the world. Never has been, never will be. Man's only hope is in Jesus Christ and him crucified by way of his grace that changes human hearts. Nothing else can change human hearts. Nothing. But the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and descending power of God the Holy Spirit in and through Christ and Christ alone. Nothing will change man's heart other than him. We're ambassadors for him, not your political party. I'm an independent. Goes for you too. <laughs> Everyone is either in or out of Christ. That's it. In route to heaven or in route to hell. That's it. We're ambassadors of the king. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The basis of the appeal is right here, verse 21. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him and in him only. That's why you'll never be judged for your sin, Christian. The righteousness of Christ has been placed upon your account. The way God sees you now is he sees Christ. Positionally. Pure. Holy. Righteous. Justified. Which means declared free from all blame. Sinless. 
positionally. Practically sinless? No, that's why we're being sanctified. Conformed more and more to the image of Christ as we live and breathe in these earthen vessels that are perishing. That can be painful. In other words, it's all from God. It's been done. It is finished. Amen? So let me just jump in to chapter 6, verse 1, because it's kind of connected together. And notice, and working together with him. You ever see yourself as a co-worker of Almighty God? It's right there. Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. What is he citing there? Old Testament reading, Isaiah 49, verse 8, from which we read earlier this morning. When Isaiah predicts the day of salvation, a time of God's favor, he's looking ahead to the messianic age, the cross of Jesus Christ, his finished work. That's what he means by what he says right there. We're ministers of that king. The period of redemption promised long, long ago has now arrived. Verse 2, chapter 6. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Time of what? New covenant ministry. Now is the day of salvation. He's come. It is finished. You're his ambassadors. You can go out with power and confidence, not in yourselves, but in the one who has raised you up from death to new life. Amen? Ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That announcement goes out to all this morning. If you're not, I beg of you. I beg of you all on the TV. If you're not in Christ, be reconciled to God right now or the chance may pass forever and you become hardened in your unbelief one more day. Come to Christ and believe, trust in him, and you shall be saved. For the rest of you, Go out as ambassadors, confident, not in yourselves, but in him who called you and has renewed you and empowers you for service today. For Christ's sake, together we say, amen. amen. Father, we do thank you for that glorious hope, that finished work. Lord, we are weak. I'll speak of myself as weak, flawed, stumbling and bumbling about in life. As I speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters here this morning, so help us to, to lean into Christ, our living Savior, and to draw the power that we need from his Holy Spirit um, who resides within us. And Lord, help us to rightly represent you as your ambassadors, representatives of another kingdom, your kingdom, which is not of this world. But as we live in this one, help us to rightly reflect um, your love that's been poured into us, as did the Apostle Paul. We need grace to do it because we're weak and helpless. For Christ's sake, we pray once again. Amen.